You're listening to an audio message from Palm Vista Community Church. If you would like to check out more resources, please visit palmvista.org. Welcome to Palm Vista Community Church as we continue our series on the Sermon on the Mount. We've entitled the series Portrait of a Disciple. And really what we're going to do the next two weeks are two postscripts. So these passages aren't per se the Sermon on the Mount, but I believe very much so they speak to us about the Sermon on the Mount. They are the truths that Jesus put out when he preached the Sermon on the Mount, his inaugural sermon on the, on the Mount in Galilee. These two passages, the first of which is in Matthew 22, 34 to 40, and the second one next week, Matthew 28, 14 to 20, are postscripts. Several years later, at the end of Jesus' ministry. So they're very, very important. We've entitled this message, One Great Love. One Great Love. The text is Matthew 22, 34 to 40. Jesus paints this incredible, vivid portrait of a disciple in the Sermon on the Mount. And at the center of that portrait of a disciple is one great love. Jesus always aims for the heart. If you recall, his main point in the Sermon on the Mount is embrace a whole person righteousness from the heart. Reject the external righteousness, the fake righteousness of the Pharisees. Take the mask off. Be who you are in Christ from the inside out. And that's exactly what he does right here. Jesus aims to pull back the complicated layers in our heart to reveal our one great love. That which we love the most, what we hold the dearest. Now let me be very clear with you. It is a competing field, my heart, your heart. If you're not a Christian, then by definition your one great love is not God. In fact, the Bible says you hate God. I pray that not offend you. I offer that respectfully, but it is what the Bible says. And I pray that you would hear the gospel this morning, because if you're here, God is drawing you by his one great love that you might love him. But if you're a Christian, you would acknowledge with me, yes, I love God, but there's a competing love in my heart. I understand that. I don't know what your competing love is. I pray that as we hear this sermon, not only would God capture our hearts and our vision and our minds, your vision, your heart, your mind, and stoke the fires of the one great true love of God in Christ, but I pray he also helped you discern that competing love for you. Because we all have many, but usually there's one that predominates. For me, it's the love of your acceptance. I love God But there are some days I find myself battling with a competing love, a love of self, but mostly a love of your respect and adoration and admiration. I just, I I love it when you would say, good job, Al. It's not a bad thing. But if that love gains ascendancy in my heart, that's what's called idolatry. I was reading something recently that one of our members wrote, 
And, and it hit me in the heart. And if this helps you identify your competing love, great. But I just I want to share this because it, it, I thought it was profound. If I love others' validation and praise more than I love God's validation and praise in Christ, I have lost the ability in that moment to truly love and see them, others, because I will be constantly searching for my reflection in their eyes. I will be evaluating their words and actions as to what they are saying about me, capital M, capital E, instead of listening and trying to understand what they are saying about themselves. I just want to be honest with you. As I preach this message about one great love, I do love Jesus, but there's a competing love in my heart. What is the competing love in your heart? So if I were to ask you, is your one great love God? First question. In essence, I'm asking about whether you're a believer or not. But then if I were to ask you, how are you doing with that one great love and the competing love? Whatever it is for you, pick one. I know there are many, but pick one. It may be pleasure, it may be power, it may be money. It may just be, I want to be right. I want to succeed. Nothing wrong with wanting to succeed. But if you love that more than God, that's called an idol. And so Jesus here, he comes to our hearts. He comes to who we are. I love it. Because he comes with grace. He comes with truth. He comes with grace. Both. And he speaks to us about the one great love. You see, in this text, Jesus, at the end of his ministry, has been asked by the Pharisees, the lawyers, uh, the scribes, um, all of the leaders of Israel, the religious men of the world who want to trap Jesus. They hate Jesus. They do not like his message because it's a heart message. It's not just a game. It's not a religious game. But he's going to the heart. And he's, they know he's speaking about them when he speaks about hypocrites that kind of put a face on, but they're not really righteous. They love the praise of men more than the praise of God. And it's at the end of his ministry... They've been listening to this for three years, and they want nothing more than to kill him. So what they're doing here is they're asking him questions to try to trap him to both downgrade his reputation amongst the people and get him in serious trouble with the authorities so they can bring charges against him. It's like when someone sits you down and tries to ask you a bunch of questions under oath to try to trap you. Only this here they're trying to trap him to kill him. This is where, in this section, is that great uh, piece where they say, hey, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Of course, they're thinking we have him because he said, if he says, yes, pay taxes to Caesar, the people will hate them because they hated Caesar and Rome because they were oppressing them. And if he says, no, don't pay taxes to Caesar, the Roman guards that are listening right now will, will, will arrest him and kill him. And that's where Jesus said, give me a coin. Whose inscription on, is on that? Caesar's? Well, then render to Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God what is God's. So this is, this is in that line of questioning, okay? It's at the end of his ministry. So this is the next question. So they figure, we've got him now. We're going to ask him, what is the great commandment? Again, 1,613 commandments. They got him. Even if he picks one of the top ten, somebody's not going to be happy with it because he's going to pick one that's not their favorite. And Jesus response to the question about the great commandment is about the great love which summarizes all the commandments so let's read his response you there matthew 22 verses 34 
to 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he, Jesus, said to him, the lawyer, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. It's fascinating how Jesus cuts right to the heart, right to the heart of that Attorney who questioned him, right to the heart of the Pharisees that were listening, right to the heart of the people who were listening in, and he cuts right to our heart. He says, at the core of what God wants is a heart that loves him and loves one's neighbor as oneself. This summarizes all the law, all the prophets. That's just another way of saying it summarizes the Bible's message. See, Jesus defines a disciple as one who loves God with all his heart soul and mind, and one who loves his neighbor as himself. Dear fellow disciples, this is Jesus' word to us this morning. This is the main point of this text. It's the main point of the Bible. It is what defines us as disciples. Here it is on the screen, very simple. Love God and love your neighbor. Love God and love your neighbor. Point one. Love God. In verse 34, the Pharisees, as I mentioned, sent an expert of the law. And he was hoping to get Jesus, to damage his reputation, and to doom him before the authorities. Jesus responds to his question of what is the great commandment, not with one of the top ten that Moses brought down from the mountain, but with the Shema Israel. The Shema Israel is found in Deuteronomy 6.5. And here it is on the screen. This is how Jesus responded to them by basically quoting this text, Deuteronomy 6, 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Do you see the difference? In our text, what's the last one? With all your mind. I wouldn't make too much of that difference. By the way, this Shema Israel was recited twice a day by every pious Jewish person. So everybody was familiar with this. I wouldn't make too much of the difference between with all your might and with all your mind. Here's the bottom line, friends. What Jesus is saying here, love God with your entire being. Love God with your entire being. This is that whole person righteousness. This is that whole thing he was saying on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, when you do something, don't do it to be seen by others, but do it because God is the one who you're looking at. Love him with your whole person. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't be half-hearted like the Pharisees. Take the mask off. Love him with your whole heart. At the heart of the portrait of a disciple is this wholehearted love for God. See, the core of this one great love, it is from our very being. And we see that in this threefold use of the word all in verse 37. Look at it with me. Verse 37. Love God with all your heart. Love God with all your soul. Love God with all your mind. Let's start with all your heart. 
The heart here, and let me just say this. Be careful not to separate these three as if somehow they have a tripartite view of mankind. Baloney. What he's saying is, love God with your whole being. He's just giving you some aspects. He's trying to give you some points to understand what he's saying. Bottom line is, love God with your whole heart, everything you are, all your being. But then he says, with all your heart. Because, see, the heart, the word there is cardia. Your heart here represents for a Jew your very being, the center of who you are from the inside out. Do you remember what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount when he was summarizing one section there? Don't need to turn there. I'm sure you're familiar with this. We've said it many times here. But in 621, Jesus said the following, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What you love defines you. That's a little unnerving, isn't it? (laughs) That's why he says you can't love God and love money. You could fit in anything there. It's my being. It's what I treasure. It's what I love. It's the center of who I am. If you're here and you're not a Christian, then your heart cannot love anything other than yourself and what you see in this world. And I beg you, I beg you as you hear the gospel, that you would repent and believe in Jesus. But Christian, we know this, right? Our hearts, sadly, can be divided because we have been given a new heart forged at the cross of Christ. Before I loved me and I loved money and I loved power and I loved pleasure, whatever it is for you. But Jesus gave me a new heart at the cross. That's what he did for you. You didn't make your own heart new. He gave you a new heart. And now you can love God. That's how you were supposed to. You were created that way. Sin came in, divided your heart. So I've got a new heart. But how many of you know that even with my new heart, There's this enemy within that still competes. There's other loves that kind of want to shove that out. It's the place where I love you, but the moment you cross me, that competing love of my pleasure, me being right, my reputation, me getting to work on time on the highway can win. And that's when the fingers come out and the words come out and whatever comes out, all right? So he's talking about loving God from all your heart. And when we fail to do that, maybe in our marriage, maybe with our children, maybe in our finances, as a Christian, here's our hope. We go back to the Lord and say, Lord, you gave me a new heart. Yes, there's a competing love. It's called the flesh. And yes, it it took over. I let it take over. I chose that. But that does not define me. This defines me. So, Lord... Lord, forgive me. Lord, I I want to love you from the heart because I've been given a new heart. In Christ, we have a new life. Christian, that's encouraging. See, I'm not a hypocrite if I sin as a Christian. I'm a hypocrite if I do not acknowledge that sin and I pretend like I'm something that I'm not. I would tell the kids all the time, and thank you, Vanessa and Fernando, for reminding us of this. They're they're people. So when you blow it with your kids, you just say, I'm so sorry, sweetheart. Dad just got really mad at you at the table. Maybe I had a point, (laughs) but the way I drove that point through your skull with my cross words was wrong. 
So you're not a hypocrite. You, you could tell people, love your kids and be kind. Oh, but you're not kind. You're right, I'm not. And I've confessed it and I'm praying. to. This makes us humble people. See, the Pharisees had the masks on. They wouldn't acknowledge that. So, so this is loving God with our whole heart. Next, with all your soul. With all your soul, basically, it's that part of your being that gives you energy. That's all I can, it's, I, think, I think that's what he's saying there. Love him with all your energy. It's interesting, this idea of with all your soul, you can kind of trace it back to creation. If you remember in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it says that God created man from the ground and he formed him with all the sand and everything. And then he breathed into man and he became a life living, excuse me, he became a living being in some translations. But the other way you can translate that Hebrew word is soul. It's this idea in the New Testament that we were dead in our sins, but then God by his spirit came in and Gave us life. Uh, I was thinking of a Romans 8, 11, which is, um, uh, has been especially relevant to me recently as I age. It says, if the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, he will quicken your mortal bodies. Oh, Lord, quicken this mortal body. It needs quickening. <laughs> so love God with all your energy. Man, where do, what do you pull all your energy in? It, it's amazing how exhausted I can get when some things lie before me, like writing a paper. I'm not a good writer. Thinking hard. Oh, I can be exhausted. can't think. And suddenly I hear ESPN in the other room. Yeah, let's go. I'm jumping. I'm screaming. You know, I'm like. <laughs> so there's competing energies, right? Now let's be real with one another. But I'm not defined by that. I'm defined by an energy and a zeal for God. And there are times that that flags, that that wanes. I get that. But listen, in Christ, I know I've got life. And I know that without Christ, I'm dead. I'm dying. I'm dead, actually. And I am dying, both in. But in Christ, I have life. So, Lord, let me live from that, from your spirit. That's the juice of my life. That's the energy. That's what gets me up in the morning. And when it's not, just say, Lord, it's not. <sighs> Please help me. That's being honest with God. You're not a hypocrite. You're just being honest with God. And you're leaning forward to want to live that way. Because that's, that's true life indeed. And then third, love God with all your mind. What does that mean? I, I think that it's that aspect of our being that deals with not only how we think about theology, very much so. Love God with all your mind. Think about doctrine. Read books. But it's that, it's that worldview. Am I loving God with my mind? Am I thinking through what God says about very, maybe at times, complicated issues. Am I thinking through with my mind? Am I loving God with all my intellect, whatever level of intellect you might have? Do I employ that to love God? Do I love reading about God, thinking about God? For me, it's writing. There's this exercise that I do called the triple bear Okay, the triple bear is a bear, all right? You, you get down on your, your knees like this, and you get your legs, and then you hop like this for a minute. And that may look easy, you know? You do that for a minute, at least for me, and I am crying. <laughs> My quads are dying. Now, if I, if I didn't admit that to you, I'd be lying. But 
There are times where I do not want to do the triple bear. But I, I do it. And I'm getting stronger. There are times I don't want to write. For me, it's writing. It's thinking carefully before I speak. I'm trying to learn to do that more. And the way I do that is write. So, so, so we write our manuscript. We don't read from it. We write it. Why? Because it forces me to organize my thoughts. And there's times I don't want to do the triple bear. I don't want to read the thick book. But that's not who I am. It's a competing force for my mind. Will my mind love me and love what I want to think about? You know, read a political article or look at sports or think about that. Nothing wrong with those things. Or will my mind love God by saying, no, I'm disciplining myself. I'm going to rewrite that paragraph until it makes sense to me. Because if I don't on Sunday, it won't make sense to anybody else if I say it. And even when I do think it through, sometimes it doesn't make sense. But I trust God on that one. Do you see where I'm getting at? That I love, I love you, Lord, so I'm, I'm pushing through that. By your spirit, soul, the energy. Because my heart has been made new at the cross. Okay. Bottom line, as disciples, we love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind. We love him wholeheartedly. Point one. Point two. This means we love our neighbor as ourselves. In verse 39, Jesus tells us that loving God with all of our heart, soul, and mind looks like loving our neighbor as ourselves. In fact, Jesus says the great commandment is love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And a second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. See, Jesus here is referring to at the end of his ministry, several years later, to what he said at the beginning of his ministry. Remember the golden rule? Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. How do I know that these two are linked? Because listen to what Jesus says at the end of that in the Sermon on the Mount. For this is the law and the prophets. So on purpose, three years or so later, Jesus, when they ask him what's the great commandment, he says, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And what does he say after that? What does he say after love the, uh, the, the, your neighbor as yourself? Verse 40, what does he say? On these two commandments depend what? All the law and the prophets. He's making a connection for us. Sermon on the Mount. Golden rule. For this is the law and the prophets. The great commandment several years later. Love God, love your neighbor. All the law and prophets is summarized here. It is simple. But it's so hard. It is hard to love you as I love myself. Because I love myself an awful lot. And I want you to love me an awful lot. But if I love God first, then I'm going to love you. That's what Jesus is saying here. See, what Jesus has done, because he's God, he's authoritatively interpreted the Old Testament Shema Israel, Deuteronomy, um, the Deuteronomy patches that we read just a moment ago, 6, 5, and he's now united it with Leviticus 19.18, another law on the screen, Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Jesus saying, I am the Lord. Let me tell you, Israel, what 
I meant when I inspired Moses to say those words some 1,500 years earlier. 1,500 B.C., Moses writes these passages. Jesus' time, Jesus is going to interpret that. He's going to take the Shema, and he's going to take this commandment, and he's going to unite them together, and he's going to say, look, here's the great commandment, love God, and here's a second one which is like it, love your neighbor. What he's saying is this. If you wholeheartedly love God, you will express it by wholeheartedly loving your neighbor. See, these two commandments go together. You cannot say that you love God if you do not love your neighbor or your brother. John, who was there when Jesus said these words, years later wrote a letter, 1 John. And he, I think, was thinking back to what Jesus said there when he wrote the following, 1 John 4, 20 to 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother... He is a liar. Ouch. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his neighbor. I think he was thinking about the great commandment. He was interpreting it for him. He was reminding the church years and years and years later. I forgot exactly when 1 John was written, but it was years, 20 30 years, maybe longer, after Jesus spoke these words. See, loving your neighbor as yourself starts with seeking the greatest good for the greatest number of people as we serve them with all of our strength as unto God. It's not easy. It's not easy. We all have our thorny issues and sins. We all have our quirks and our little smirks. I don't know about you, smirks really set me off. You know, I don't know, I, I don't know why. I'm just ready to, you know, blah. But I've got them too. Those little sarcastic digs, you know. So how do we do it, Al? This is how we do it. We do it by the love of God, his love for us. 1 John 4.19 on the screen. We love because he first loved us. Oh, friends, John is thinking there of the cross of Jesus Christ. It's at that cross that my heart was changed from a self-loving, selfish, it's all about me heart, to an others-loving, first God-loving, and loving my neighbor, a self-giving heart rather than a self-grasping and wanting heart. He's changed me from being greedy to generous. He's changed me from being an angry man to being a man who loves and is patient. And yes, there are competing times when, I, when, the, when the, the wrong part of me, the old man, still rises up and I make those decisions to love other things, love myself more than God. But that's not who I am. I repent of that. And I'm saying, God, I want to love you. And I know loving you means loving my neighbor. As Jesus concluded this for us, God's will, the law, is expressed in these two. Verse 40. On these two, love God, love your neighbor. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Friends, the law is the reflection of who God is. And we as disciples made in the image of God and now being restored into that image, the image of Christ, should be this way too. That's all Jesus is saying. It's a process. We're not perfect. There are days we love other things and ourselves more than God. 
There are days that we do not love our neighbor as ourselves, but that does not define us. That is something that we are growing out of. We're growing through. We heard about that last night in the marriage seminar. Thank you, Corey. God is changing us, and he's using us as spouses. If you're married, as spouses to help change one another. And if you're not married, that those that you're in relationship with, your friends, your roommates, those you're in discipleship groups with or small groups with, so that we might reflect God's glory. This is life indeed. Corey said it yesterday. When the seed dies, it comes to life. It's put in the ground. The plant comes up. If it it doesn't die, it stays alone. Self-love never satisfies. It doesn't. After you eat the, the, not the bowl, but the barrel of ice cream, are you satisfied? No, you're sick. (laughs) When you indulge that pleasure, are you satisfied when it's all over? No, you're guilty. When you give vent to your anger and love yourself in that moment more than others, are you satisfied? No, you're miserable, and those around you are. Life is love God, love your neighbor. It's not easy, I know that, but we've got a new heart. We've been conformed into the image of Christ and are being conformed into the image of Christ. That's who we will be. It's guaranteed, Christian, and that's who we're becoming because of that guarantee by the Spirit, for God's glory, and yes, for our good. Let's conclude with this. Our culture lives off the good of this, even though it might reject God. You see, at least so far, it's good that our culture celebrates heroes. It's good that our culture celebrates people that lay down their life to serve others. May more movies be made and more books be written about heroic people who lay down their lives, the moms who lay down their lives for their children, the grandparents that help raise their their grandchildren because they're laying down their lives for them, the heroes that run toward the gunshots, not away from the gunshots, the people who sacrifice themselves for others. There's something in our culture that we honor those people. Even if, we don't, if the culture doesn't understand why, this is why. This is how God made us. And you will not be satisfied. You will not be happy if you continue grasping after your will, your way, your love. I don't care how much money you amass or how many followers online you get or how famous you might become. God didn't make you for that. He made you to lay his, your life down for others. To love him and love others. But I can't do that, Al. My heart's so divided. Oh, but friend, if you're a Christian, Christ has given you a whole heart. If you're not a Christian, it is divided. But I pray you hear the gospel right now. You pray and repent and believe in Jesus. See, friends, what enables us to live a lifestyle of wholehearted love for God and and to love others as ourselves is Christ's sacrifice for us. The same John, who wrote 1 John 4, the verses we just read, wrote the following. 1 John 4, 10 to 12. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. This word propitiation speaks of Christ's work on the cross. So non-Christian, this is what the cross means. 
Christian, let me remind you. When God came in the flesh, lived the perfect life, had fulfilled all that God required, he then chose to go to the cross and propitiate our sin, our, the wrath that was upon us. What that word means is this. To propitiate is to take away the thing that causes God's wrath to come upon us, sin. That person propitiates it, takes it to themselves, and then to give you the thing that causes God's favor. So on the cross, Jesus took our, the wrath that we richly deserve, Christian, took the penalty. He died, which is the penalty for sin. The wrath of God was on him. It was a horrible time on that cross. And he gave us his righteousness. He gave us his favor. That's love. And if you've experienced that love, that love, that's the love that empowers your soul and fills you by the spirit to be able to love others. That's our hope. And that's what we want to celebrate right now. So quietly, would the ushers please get up and begin to serve us? Worship team, would you come forward? I just want to pray for a moment. God is speaking, friends, so just listen to his voice as we're preparing to receive communion. Father, I pray right now that you would give hope to those of us who fail so often to love others. Lord, would you please give us hope that you are changing our hearts, that you're moving us from self-love and love of reputation and love of being right and and all those, those competing loves. Lord, that's not who we are if we're in Christ, but those are enemies in our heart that often compete and at, at times very loudly in our minds and souls. And Lord, would you show us the one great love? Reveal Jesus right now. Oh, Holy Spirit, sir, come and give us an understanding. Open up the eyes of our mind and hearts. We want to love you with all of our minds. We're focused on you right now. We're thinking on you with all of our energy. Lord, we're excited about this as Christians. Lord, at our very being, we're saying this is who we are. Jesus, let us see you afresh, even as we celebrate this this covenant ordinance of communion. Representing your body broken on the cross. Your blood poured out on the cross. Lord, I pray for the unbeliever this morning that your gentle, wonderful, awesome, powerful, amazing spirit before which we bow and tremble but also draws our hearts and says you are now children, no longer orphans. The spirit of adoption would come and give life to a dead heart right now in this auditorium. Right now, Father, I pray in Jesus' name that by your sovereign will and your sovereign grace you would open up the eyes of their heart and they would repent. They would believe in you, Jesus. And for those of us who do believe, Lord, give us fresh assurance of your love. Help us to love that person we're thinking of that it's hard to love right now. Show us how we can do the most good to the most number of people as we love our neighbors in that new ministry center. Where we work, on our blocks, at school. Lord, move in our midst, I pray in Jesus' name. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to find out more resources or see how you can donate to this ministry, simply visit palmvista.org. And be sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date with upcoming teachings.